0: Hi, welcome to episode 2, part 2. I'm your host, Noel Woodward, and this is For the Love of. For the Love of Urbanism, Dynamic Domains of Antarctica with Swadeet Chaturvedi. We continue our discussion with Swadeet as we delve deeper into the semantics of landscape urbanism, the geopolitics involved, and Swadeet's new project, TREASY, an afforestation and microforestry venture. I feel your research uh, kind of goes beyond landscape urbanism in the sense that um, the term is usually associated with cities rather than entire continents. So let's just kind of get into the semantics of these terms.
1: (laughs) Sure. That's always the interesting bit. So uh, basically, like I think I, I mentioned this earlier as well. Landscape Is I think like English language in general is uh, does not actually describe the 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 term itself. It's just it's just it's just a it's just a idea. So obviously, landscape would mean that there is a larger scale of land which can be scaped. But uh, like one of the huge. points of discussion at the A was that this is, this is to a territorial nature of like the humans and there has been a huge history about that. Like there has been strategic warfares and uh, like occupying hills and important valleys throughout the history just for like territorial advantages and deterrence. And that's how it started growing, the 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 understanding of the landscape as a whole. And of course, like there are like multiple cultures and like belief systems who have been like intricately woven into the landscape as well. And and all, all those sorts of things. But it's never been perceived as the term landscape because because once the architectural profession started getting its recognition. Um, landscape got in a way restricted because of that but uh, because at the end of the day the, the market demands like exotic gardens and trees and and, and an, an expert who's basically good at that but um, there has to be uh, there probably has to be a better terminology for it but there has to be a, a proper understanding of how geophysical processes function or like how geographical scale is actually reacting to your your interventions, which can either be like on an individual scale or on a social scale. But uh, we need to like quickly realize that whatever action that you're creating at whatever scale has a direct or an indirect consequence with planetary processes. And probably like, we can use planetary instead of landscape but i think that would be misleading as well because i think the 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 scale that we're talking about is somewhere in between the 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 urban and the whole planet but uh, i think the more important um, idea is not the scale of it but the fact that we need to realize that everything is interwoven you're not you're not in an isolated bubble nobody is And that is the, that is the biggest takeaway for me, like as far as the landscape urbanism is concerned, that as soon as we realize that every process, every, every drop of water, every food, everything is in, in, is in connection with everything else. And obviously this is, this is an abstract idea and like it's a metaphysical concept, but, uh, but it's true because that's what the research in Antarctica taught me. And that's that's what a lot of other experiences have taught me as well. That that it doesn't matter that if it's landscape or if it's urbanism or if it's planetary, because in the end, these are like endless semantics, as you've rightly said. But it is about the fact that we need to be more conscious towards the outside of ourselves, just so that the insight hmm. is intact yeah. and safe in a very yeah. very shallow mm-hmm. way of speaking so
0: um i think when we talk about things like this yes they're very abstract um but they kind of tend mm-hmm. to creep into society when it comes to uh the geopolitics of it so there is an abstract yep. idea uh, on both sides of the spectrum mm-hmm. you might have people who completely don't agree with this and don't believe in it and on the other side of the spectrum you have radicals who kind of are willing to burn things and destroy things uh, to make a point so i mean all of it is political everything is political if you think about it and uh, so so how do you think politics needs to change or or not to address these needs we've got green new deals sprouting out Of every corner these days and I'm currently reading the uninhabitable earth by David Wallace and within the first 10 within the first 10 pages he manages to paint an absolutely terrifying picture of events to follow so where do you where do you think we need to stop talking and start doing
1: I think like uh, the biggest truth that we need to accept right now is that we're living in a capitalist world Hmm. for good or for bad that's for like the experts to to argue but the important thing is that that's the truth. And uh, the politicians, I wouldn't even say the politicians, I would say the policymakers have to realize that there needs to be an economic incentive for any change that you demand. Hmm. If you want someone from a street to live, from, a, from an unauthorized house to live into uh, social housing on the 20th story of a, of a concrete building, then there needs to be incentive for that. No, you cannot expect a person to just change his or her lifestyle without any economic incentive. And I guess that's what we uh, try to do in the dynamic domain um, proposal as well, that there needs to be adequate incentives to be able to fish in either a sensitive zone or a less sensitive zone. We cannot say that you cannot fish over there because that's how radicalism sprouts out. That's how differences come out. We need to understand that the economics and like in a very abrasive way of saying money is what needs people to do meaningful things or like harmful things. And if the politicians actually are, if they actually care about the, the system and the stuff, then, they, then there needs to be like right incentives channeled to the right direction. For, for them to be able to bring out what whatever changes they want because you can argue that there is some sort of an ideological difference with, with, with like whatever, uh, whatever like whoever is running the state, that's mm. okay but the idea is to be able to raise the awareness and the consciousness of the society. Even if you have like ideological differences, you can still create enough economic incentives for, for a simple idea like i don't know like agroforestry or if you if you want to like develop fisheries in in your river systems then if you if you have well managed economic incentives then nobody has any intention of harming the 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 river ganges why would why would anyone do that but because there's like not enough research and thought about it there's not enough incentive for it to be organized people are mismanaging it they're like they they they're just like completely out of sync of the whole process even though it's been like a cultural phenomenon for them for like thousands of years they're still ready to destroy it because we are living in a capitalist world and i think that's the biggest shift that's that's going to come in 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 the near future wherein we realize that if we actually want to fight climate crisis on a global scale if you actually want to implement green new deal then we need to understand the stakeholders, their needs, and bridge the gap instead of uprooting things from the ground, which actually leads to radicalism and destruction and differences and civil wars and fights for resources and all those kinds of things. If you're you're aware of the fact that what you're doing over here has an indirect or a direct connection in another society on the other side of the planet, if you're aware of it and if you're trying to manage it through an economic incentive model within your society, then I think like half of our issues are already solved or catered to because at one end, your your social system is is earning through managing those ecological resources and the other end, the ecological resources itself are in sync with the natural processes. So there has to be like this, this cyclical loop that needs to be created when we when we are talking about managing clo- ecological resources and managing the people and bringing a shift out of them to to such a to such a transition. So yeah, that's that's probably my opinion on it.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I was reading Noam Chomsky's Climate Crisis and the Global Green New Deal, where he talks about a very realistic blueprint for combating climate change. Yeah. And there's a whole lot of noise when it comes to this because uh, climate change deniers have continuously fanned the flames and you know kind of stoke fear in the minds of people who will be directly affected by a change in systems and processes especially when it comes to fossil fuels. However Chomsky and Poland chart out a guideline where a transition to cleaner energy will still create jobs, boost economies and of course in the long run save us from ourselves. So yeah there are means of addressing this problem and Actually you're playing an active role in that as well. So I'll just read out a bit about Treezy and then maybe you could expand on that. Treezy is an afforestation and microforestry venture with the objective of tapping into the opportunity of developing a network of tree cover and forest systems throughout the subcontinent. This will be done along with building the capacity to digitally monitor such resources in real time whilst empowering the rural stakeholders into the process. Could you elaborate on that a bit?
1: Sure. So actually, like a very, very big role that was played by like this whole pandemic and the lockdown was that it enabled me to sit back and just think and look at the opportunities that could be tapped into. And I realized that like there are like really, really steep uh, pledges that's been taken to the Paris accord by, by the Indian government and uh, and like i started getting into it and i started realizing that there is to be like a huge huge uh, increase of tree cover that's gonna that needs to happen it's, it's not even a matter of who is going to do it or how it's going to happen it just needs to happen so that first of all the pledges are catered to to the paris agreement and also like the bigger uh, challenge of clean air and clean ecosystem of the Indian subcontinent is also catered to. So whilst I was like going through it, I realized that uh, the Indian government, I mean the Indian state, I wouldn't say the government, but the Indian state has pledged to increase its tree cover, national tree cover to one third of its geographical area, which is like 33%. And, uh, and like right now, not right now, but like the last data was taken in 2013, it was about 20 to 22% of the tree cover. So there still needs to be an increase of almost 13%. And given the size of the country, 13% is a lot. And it's almost like 30 million hectares of trees that needs to be planted. And I, I realized that it's just, there's just not enough people and enough expertise in this domain to be able to execute this we cannot rely on the government or the state to actually be able to execute this because they're not they're not like they don't have the adequate skill set to do it they would end up like like giving contracts to people who are not who have no idea about it but they see money in it so they started doing it and then there's absolutely no uh, sort of surveillance of the survival rate of those trees and the quality of those trees and, and, and so on. So I, I, I quickly realized that there's like a huge, huge uh, vacuum of uh, private players in this in this situation. And uh, given my, my, my educational background and also like the, the curiosity of actually getting into urbanism and landscape, I realized that this is something that can be tapped into so I started looking into like different kinds of ventures and and uh, practices that already exist, and I quickly realized that this this concept of Miyawaki forest uh, has recently creeped into the the discussions of uh, landscape architects in India, especially. What it is is that there is like uh, there's this like huge uh, hugely renowned Japanese horticulturist Akira Miyawaki, and um, he he basically designed this uh, really high dense forest systems, which can be planted in a very small plot. Like you can have it in a, in a hundred square feet plot with like three layers of uh, tree systems. So for example, there can be a shrub next to a, uh, a sub tree and next to a canopy tree. And then these like different kinds of trees can actually placed really tightly so that there's healthy competition of growth between them. So it actually encourages them to grow even more than a normal tree wood, which is placed like five meters apart or something. So, so this was, this was like one concept that is, that I found could be, could be actually developed into something because when you talk about like urban forest systems, you don't really, you don't really like, it's not normal for a city to have ample space to actually grow a lot of forest with like enough uh, space between them. But if you actually adopt a concept like Miyawaki forest and uh, develop it properly, then you can have a network of really, really small forests throughout the urban fabric, which can actually very, very neatly be woven into the, the social system as well. And obviously it has like, I don't even need to start about talk. I don't even need to start talking about how trees are important and how forest systems are important because that's, that's like very very evident and it's very obvious but um, but yeah so so i started looking into it and then i i was lucky enough to actually uh, while i was in the process of researching this whole venture i was lucky enough to get a project wherein i developed three microforest systems and i was i was able to plant 3200 saplings as a as a start and the idea was to be able to uh, map these uh, resources, because I for me, I see a tree as a resource. And like one of the biggest problems of our uh, of our policymaking is that the farmers are not encouraged to grow trees. And it's very simple because if, if you don't have an economic incentive to grow a tree, if you cannot cut a tree, then why would you grow a tree? And that's what i' that's what we've seen in the last fifty to sixty years. There's like a huge drop in the tree cover in the in the in the la- later half of the twentieth century, and uh, like a huge increase in the agricultural uh, landscape. and that is basically because like the the policies were so strict to actually cut down a tree. I'm not advocating that you should cut down a tree, but if it's well managed, then there's an incentive in growing a tree. And uh, we need to we need to understand that the farmers wouldn't would not grow a tree if it would occupy uh, a space within their farmland where in in which place they can actually grow a crop and sell it and actually earn from it. But if you if you're able to uh, put in place a uh, agroforestry management system wherein there is incentive for these farmers to grow a tree then that's how you start bringing in change of uh, increasing the tree cover So that's like, um, I'm going all over the place, but uh, these are the the things that I started researching on. And then finally I decided that, you know what, let's just like uh, do it. And um, right now I'm in the process of setting up the whole, uh, the whole venture. And uh, like by, by October end, I should be able to have my own studio space and I, at some point, I would start designing these forests as well. So, yeah, um, this is how it's going on right now.
0: Yeah, really interesting. Um, So, there's this kind of um, dichotomy that exists. You mentioned the Paris Agreement and what the countries kind of pledged. Mm -hmm. But uh, in recent weeks, months, we've seen that um, in order to bring in investment, global investment, Mm-hmm. we've kind of uh, given these uh, investors a free hand to fast track development uh, cut forests and uh, kind of go about their business without any kind of um, yeah i i mean any court intervention or anything i mean that comes later yeah yeah uh, much later after everything has been done and dusted so mm-hmm. um i mean how how do we kind of um kind of chart the trajectory going forward because uh, on one hand you're saying that you will by 2030-2035 yep. you will kind of achieve a certain carbon neutrality a certain I'm saying yeah, yeah. but on the other hand you have policies which go completely against that. Mm-hmm. So so what what do you think needs to be done? I mean this is a very serious ingrained issue. Yeah. Um, that isn't going to sort itself out anytime soon.
1: Yeah, I think like you're absolutely bang on correct with that. So usually, what happens is that it's about when when you actually talk about statecraft, no matter what state you're living in, there is a hierarchy of priorities of that state according to whatever that situation is. And often, I've realized that climate crisis and uh, environmental um, let's say, policies and projects are nowhere close to the top of the priority. And that's, again, coming back to our point that that uh, there's not enough incentive for everyone to be able to think about it. That's one. And second, I also think that, like, a lot of states are, are especially the developing states, are in a position, are in a very sensitive position wherein they're either... Like territorially threatened, or there's some sort of warfare going on, or there's some sort of lack of resources, and or there's some sort of like civil disagreement within the within the country, and usually these things overpower the the climate crisis, which is for me a very. And I don't I don't like, of course it's it's like, people are more opinionated right now. There's more information that's like going through them, and. Uh, Probably there's not like the right, the right kind of uh, information that's coming across. But it is what it is. And so recently, I found out that like um, the government has decided to uh, take down this like really ancient forest in Chhattisgarh and or Jharkhand, like somewhere around those two states. And I started looking into that. What is going on right now? How can you be like taking down forests? and that too for a carbon-intensive resource such as coal. And it was absolutely absurd for me. And then I started looking into it, and I started finding reasons behind that. And I realized that the the Indian state has been importing coal from China for the last 50 to 60 years, even though it's sitting on the largest bank of coal reserves. And it's a very interesting... um, (laughs) it's a very interesting like dilemma for for anyone that you're sitting on the largest bank of coal which is like important for your uh, electricity generation and you're still importing it from another country which you have a territorial dispute with and in between there is this really ancient forest system which is at stake so what do you do and uh, I mean like what I can say is that there is no overnight solution for it at the end of the day the state needs the carbon in like carbon based resource which in this case is coal because you cannot like uh, get into a clean energy mode within a year or two especially when the when the biggest seller of your resource is at a territorial um, concentration with you so uh, it's, these are the kinds of things that I think is going to delay the process of climate crisis fight as far as I'm concerned. Because for me, like statecraft and national politics and all these things are secondary. Because obviously, like, I, 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 I see this whole uh, system as, as a global system instead of, like, territorial systems and national systems. But... I at the same time I also understand that as far as the statecraft is concerned, it is a very, very complex um I, I wouldn't say profession, but but it is a profession. And and the the biggest problem is that I don't think the the people who should be in a position to manage these forest systems and these resources are actually listened to or catered to. Or their opinions actually are put in the right place, because if they are, then then like there's a there's an inherent level of satisfaction that the, there might be a reason behind doing this. But if you're if you're not if you're not comfortable with the people who are taking these decisions, and then even if the decision is right, there's gonna there's always going to be a gap between bet, between the societies, between the state, and between like a different country or something like that so i guess like we need to understand that who who is an expert in doing what and actually putting those opinions in place is the priority in my opinion
0: yeah yeah so um i mean this entire i'd like to just go back to the beginning where this entire process kind of started this awareness kind of started Mm -hmm. started with kind of documenting the proofs that were out there and yeah. the entire movement that was seen as an awakening if you can call it uh can be attributed to rachel carson's masterpiece which is silent spring yeah, yeah. um which kind of made us understand that the you know the slow minute processes that um actually exist in the ecosystem mm-hmm. uh, can have huge ramifications for us as a species yeah uh we are officially in the age where anthropogenic climate change is a reality and we've got warming We've got acidification. We've got uh, the Great Barrier Reef dying out. Then yep. we've got fragile systems. We've got the Arctic. We've got forest fires. We've got floods, storms. So it's it's, it's like it's a it's endless. And also, um, what people don't realize is that um, if either of these things occur, for example, if there's a huge hurricane or if there's a flash flood or there is. Um, a forest system that's burning and it currently is still. Yep. Um, they don't attribute it to climate change. They just say it's a one-off incident. Yeah, yeah. So I think, I mean, we live in a world where we still have people who believe in the flat Earth theory. We have climate change deniers who are constantly <laughs> undoing a lot of progress that has been made with the Paris Accord. Yeah. So yeah. all of all of this is kind of history in the making. Yeah. We are cataloging what will be seen as an unprecedented calamity with future generations looking back at us yeah. um, at the death and destruction that we've caused to the planet that we call our home i know yeah. i mean i know this is a huge question that does not it doesn't have a single answer and i don't expect one mm-hmm. but uh to kind of close things out i think um to kind of bring the conversation to a conclusive end i think we kind of need to stop looking for the answer i think and we need to start looking at the min- many little connections yeah. that will help us understand the processes in place yeah. to take informed and calculated decisions for all of mankind so your final thoughts on this
1: yeah i mean like i think you've you've rightly put it and i'm going to just like add up to it the fact that the biggest like, one of the biggest issues with, with, with the current social framework is that our opinions are generally very, very intense, I would say. And respect of the spectrum of our opinions, like, be it political, be it climate, be it whatever, like, national politics, international politics, climate agreement. It's just that, though the in- intensity of our opinions are increasing by the very moment. And I think that that's leading to like a very tense situation that irrespective of who you are and what your ideological belief systems are, there's a there's a very big chance that you are very rigid on it and you're very, very uh, imposing on it. And even if you're right, I think the best way to uh, to be able to come out to a very good solution is to communicate be open to ideas and don't like don't live in this bubble wherein the opinion that we've acquired or accumulated has to be the the bottom line of everything and that is the biggest issue that i think one of the biggest issue that i think needs to needs to go away because like such a complex issue such a complex global issue cannot be solved by individuals or or even a country or like, a continent, it has to be a global conscious decision when everybody comes in together. And obviously, this is like a utopia. And, and obviously, like history suggests that every utopia comes after a huge paradigm shifting event. But uh, even if if you're to avoid that, I think, at the end of the day, it's it's about um, getting involved in like really small decisions. Because Like nobody is expecting an individual to bring out the biggest change and like become the revolutionary portal or whatever. But it is about understanding the immediate connections that you that you have, a footprint on, the immediate products that you're relying upon, the the consumerism that's like creeping into our daily routines all the time. And just like give give it a give it a small thought that. Where we are, and what kind of product is 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 coming from where it is coming, and like what kind of situation it's it's uh it's sort of inducing and and like to just to be aware of this uh of this chain and not be isolated in a bubble is probably my biggest sort of message to to the listeners and like whoever I talk to, so yeah.
0: Nice, nice, nice way of wrapping things, with you. Um Thanks. Before we before we uh, end it, yeah. um, I always kind of ask uh, my guests to kind of share some recommendations when it comes to the topics that we talk about. It yeah. could be in the form of films, could be in the f- form of books, yeah, yeah. Um, articles. So could you share a couple of them and then I could just put them in the show notes so that everybody has access to them.
1: Yeah, like um, one of the things that i always uh, suggest everyone okay books i mean the reading material is one thing but one of the shows yep. that like was very very um had a very deep impact on me was this show called one strange rock it's uh, <laughs> it's. On,
0: i actually had that as a i had that as a point yeah uh so taron told me about this and yeah uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I've, I've actually seen a lot of these uh different kind of shows yeah but this this one just took it to a different level because it talks about uh those small connections that exist you have dust that's flying across continents yeah. Yeah. and causing helping with rain in the rainforest in the amazon so yeah. um so stuff like that yeah continue Sorry. so
1: so yeah no like that's absolutely correct and that's why i was like really mind blown by that show and the the most like the most interesting thing about that show is that it's from the perspective of an astronaut and like yeah. the recounting their days in the space from the ISS and the whole experience of looking at Earth as an object from a distance, which actually like, which is actually the 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 answer to everything. Like if you're able to perceive this system from a distance and see that how this beautifully designed piece of object floating around space is is so, so complex and yet so simple. It's just yeah. a matter of perceiving it in that way. And often because we're like on the surface, we don't, we don't realize it. But that show was, was like completely different and and of course, like it's National Geographic, but, but it was a, a brilliant um, explanation of how these complex planetary processes exist and how we're inherently woven into it. So this is one show that I would like really recommend everyone to go out and see. And then there was this uh, book by Andreas Mal, The Progress of the Storm, which actually talks a lot about materialism and how material is, is floating around the whole system because at the end of the day, it's the same material of the same system, which isn't escaping, which isn't adding. And it's just being uh, utilized in like all kinds of ways. And throughout history, it's been like that. So, and it's, it's like a very eye-opening, um, uh, information of how many things and how many, uh, processes can be, can be linked with each other and with like human action. So Andrea's mom, the progress of the storm is one. And I, I, I'm not like directly in favor of ontology and phenomenology, but I would say that, um, Foucault as a philosopher is uh writes something like really interesting stuff. And it's it's because like often this this process of everything interlinked is considered to be a very big debate in ontology and a lot of let's say rationalists they're like naturally against the idea or something, but maybe I'm completely wrong on that. Maybe there are like people who are who are somewhere in the between. But yeah, like Foucault is is someone that I would like really recommend any, any reading of of Foucault is uh, good and I can probably like share you some links with it. Sure. sure. And uh, yeah, maybe, maybe like read some good science fiction. (laughs) And I guess... (laughs) Dune (laughs) Dune is one of
0: them. Yeah. Yeah. No, but uh, I don't know if you've gone if you've uh, finished the book or you, you're still in the middle or no no i i started still, reading it
1: not not like comprehensively <laughs> just like the yeah, first yeah, chapter yeah. and two so yeah. but now that i've uh, i have like some sort of uh, time i'm going to be like getting into mm, it diving yeah. into it so looking forward to that
0: yeah. yeah it's it's a very revelatory book in the sense that um this guy who's like i think it's been 70 years frank herbert um, mm-hmm. since he wrote it and if beneath i mean on on the surface it can be seen it can seem very very overwhelming yeah because it's a completely rich kind of world that he's created mm. and you're going back and forth in kind of no okay fine i won't spoil it for anybody but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but the larger picture what he's trying to convey yeah. at least through the first book yeah is um i think that two major tenets Um, in it one is where he talks about politics Mm -hmm. and the second is he talks about um, processes and systems all right on a planet planetary level all right so he was way ahead of his time when it came to you know talking about climate change there are a lot of links that exist between the book and between the natural world that we see around us so it's it's a fabulous book that i i i would recommend to everybody
1: sure definitely gonna check it out yeah
0: cool so I think we've come to an end. Uh, thank you so mm-hmm. much, Swadeet, for joining us and for sharing your insight on dynamic domains. And I hope to bring you on uh, going forward again, where we can kind of yeah. kind of unravel more of what you've been working on. And maybe if, if we do a segment on, let's say, actually, I want to do this, which is on mm-hmm. Central Vista. Maybe I can. Oh, sure. <laughs> Maybe I can. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I can bring you on for that as well. So cool. Thanks a lot, man. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's a wonderful experience, and I like really appreciate the fact that we finally got the chance to yeah. actually do this. Yeah. And um, I think like it's a great initiative, and I've always like been a huge supporter of this. And Godspeed, and like let's see how how this this thing can grow on to be like something. And like really, really looking forward to coming back to the show and like talking about more interesting discussions, because I'm sure the 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 issues that we've uh, talked about today are not going anytime soon, soon. Yeah. so I think like we'll have a few more chances to collaborate on this, yeah, so
0: yeah,
1: anyway, best of
0: luck, thanks and man, thanks a lot again thanks, man, thanks a lot. that completes episode 2. To read more about dynamic domains as well as a whole slew of references and material, head on over to the show notes. To keep up to date with whatever's going on, you can follow us on Instagram at for the love of podcast, or you could even write to us with your thoughts, ideas and feedback at connect at ForTheLoveOfPodcast.in. Subscribe to us on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts and wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts. See you next week and stay safe. This is For the Love Of.